Welcome back to the Tifa Football Podcast. There's no Alex, there's no Joe, but we are going to be talking to Cat Law and Martin Cloak, co-chairs of the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust. And we'll be talking about pay-per-view. Uh, for those of you who don't know, or who perhaps live outside the UK, the Premier League's broadcasters in England have uh, have created a facility whereby games that wouldn't normally be on television are now available for purchase on a one-off basis for £14.95, which, as you, as you can imagine, has upset a lot of people. Um, hard times in England, Scotland, Wales, um, and likely to get harder. And this feels very much like one of those moments where football's being a little bit tone deaf. So... Martin and Kat are going to talk to us about that and, uh, well, you might not enjoy the conversation, but it's an important one and, uh, you know, at the least it's some sort of insight into the inner workings of a trust during an unusual but, um, you know, important situation. go to you guys individually and find out how much you actually pay to watch football because I think that's the crux of the argument and for the people that um for the for the for the people that that are listening from overseas and you don't quite understand the sort of the, the British TV dynamic um that might be a good starting point so Kat how, what, what are you subscribing to at the moment uh, I subscribe to Sky okay so obviously um I have well, not obviously, but I have my broadband and my phone line with them as well. So I'm going to take that expense and put that somewhere else. But in terms of the basic Sky package and then the football and the sport that I subscribe to, it's about 50, 53 pounds a month okay. for okay. Sky. If I wanted to put BT Sport on top of that, it's about an extra 25 quid. Then obviously um, when Tottenham were in the qualifiers for the Europa League, uh, we had to subscribe to um, a very professional outfit called Premier Sport. And when they managed to actually televise any of the match, uh, which wasn't that often, that was costing us 10 pounds a month. So that was on top of that. Um, And then I also pay the 7.99 a month for Amazon, for Amazon Prime for our documentaries and uh, any games that might be on that channel. And then on top of all that, I obviously pay £1,000 a year to Tottenham for a season ticket. Woohoo! Okay, so we'll call that, because the, the Premier TV was was a sort of a temporary thing, we'll call that 80 quid um, okay. just for TV each month. Very generous. M- Martin, what are you, um, what are you uh, weighing in with TV-wise at the moment? It's about the same. My Sky bill monthly is about 60 quid a month. And I mean, I've got, uh, I haven't got an outside TV aerial, so all of my TV comes via cable. Uh, and uh, there are other parts of the package that I subscribe to. So they would no doubt argue that, you know, the sport is about, I think it's about 20, 25 pounds worth of that, but I wouldn't be able to access that price without the rest of the package. So that's 60. Uh, and then uh, I've got a broadband contract with BT. Uh, and my BT bill uh, from my landline, my broadband and my sport is about £70 a month. The sport end of that is about £11. So, yeah, it's it's again that the, the actual package prices, you know, for what you're paying for the sport seems to be very reasonable. But you need to have the rest of the package <laughs> to be able to access those prices. So, again, it's interesting. Then, of course, you know, I've got the, the, the same thing for... Uh, you know, paying to actually go to the games. And it's just under a £1,000 for my season ticket. But, of course, when you go to a game, there are other costs involved with that as well. Uh, then you add the, the the cost of going to away games on, uh, and it adds up to quite a lot of money over the year. Yeah, this is the thing, because, like, 
obviously a lot of people have been very very upset about um the 1495 charge um i'm sure i'm not alone in saying that uh i haven't paid it and i will never pay it i don't even if it's Tottenham again or not i mean i think what's difficult for people to grasp and this comes up time and time again is, is people who watch the premier league um from different countries they're staggered by how much people are asked to pay before we get on to your role as a trust what was your response what was your reaction as supporters to that because first and foremost, we're all here because we're fans, not because, you know, that's the that's the starting point. How did you feel, Kat, when you heard about that number? The £14.95, well, obviously, we've been instrumental in um, leading and pushing a campaign that was called Hashtag Let Us Watch, uh, which was done under the umbrella of the Football Supporters Association. Uh, and that was when it became very apparent uh, that the televised agreement under Project Restart where well, all of those games were free to air, wasn't going to continue for the 2020-21 season. So we'd be instrumental in negotiating with our clubs and with the Premier League and with the broadcasters for the right for match-going fans to actually be able to watch those games that were taking place behind closed doors. So that had been something that we cared very deeply about. So we were delighted in September when with a bit of lobbying from the government and for the MPs as well, the Premier League did announce that they would televise the matches that weren't selected within the traditional broadcast picks uh, by BT Sport and Sky, um, uh, no additional charge for September. But then obviously they announced uh, this move at £14.95 for October. It was another classic of uh, football kind of grasping defeat from the jewels of victory. So we should have been celebrating yeah. that we'd actually managed to get these games on, on TV and that, you know, it was a, it was a victory for fans that the clubs and the broadcasters the Premier League had realised how intrinsic it was being a supporter to be able to watch your team. That sounds basic, but believe it or not, we had to drum that point home. It was incredibly disappointing that we then didn't have any dialogue, no input into that price point, how that was arrived at. Uh, we're obviously in touch with the broadcasters and the Premier Leagues and the clubs. Uh, and we are on a constant basis. And you would think that they may well have just tested, stress tested that price sensitivity with fan reps, core audience, end users, consumers, which is all of us wrapped up in one. We would have been able to tell them straight off that £14.95 was not going to fly. It's an incredible amount of money for a one-off stream. So that was my reaction. Martin, um, for those who don't quite understand it, can you explain to me and to us uh, how this price has actually arrived at, um, what the dynamic is for this kind of decision to be made? That's a really interesting question, and it's one that we've asked. Uh, and the, the official answer from the clubs is that it's not to do with us. It's all down to the broadcasters. And the official answer from the broadcasters is it's not to do with us. It's all down to the clubs. And then occasionally you'll throw in the fact that, well, it's actually really down to the Premier League. And we'll say, well, the Premier League is the 20 clubs, isn't it? So it's really the club. Oh, no, it's not the clubs. So what we've managed to to find out, because what we're interested in is, is a solution and what the people that are running the broadcast companies and football clubs are interested in is blaming each other. Uh, so it's a great partnership and those meetings must be really good when they get together. But it would seem that the Premier League, you have to go back to some numbers here, that there's 380 Premier League games every season. And the existing deals that Sky, BT Sport and Amazon Prime now have got mean that 220 of those are broadcast. So that means that 160 games 
weren't going to be televised at all. We've now got a situation where in the UK, certainly fans aren't allowed into into sporting events. Uh, You can't get into a Premier League stadium to see a Premier League match. So the Let Us Watch campaign that Kat referred to earlier said that, you know, in the midst of a national crisis, uh, when the government itself has mentioned that one of the things that can get morale up is people people watching football, you know, insert obvious joke about how bad my team is here, of course there, we needed to find a way to make sure that people could see all of their games because fans were being locked out uh, of the game. Uh, we also said that what you could potentially do there is open up to a new audience because obviously we were talking about you know the fans that would usually go to games wouldn't be able to get in but those 160 games that weren't going to be televised at all wouldn't have been seen by anybody so that there's potentially uh, there's a new market there and it was amazing that actually when we were pushing that um and and cat was at the meetings you might want to expand on it a, a, a bit later that the premier league so this is the people who run elite football in 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 this country were really surprised at the strength of feeling from fans who wanted to see their teams. Uh, imagine, you know, I mean, that must have really blindsided them, wasn't it? That, you know, that fans would want to see see their team. They would want to see the product that the Premier League tell us that they're great at selling. But what the Premier League said to the broadcasters was that, well, we need to find a way to show this, this under 160 games. Uh, so the broadcasters, as far as we can gather, went away and they said, well, uh, it's going to cost us this amount of money to, to broadcast those games, you know, the, the infrastructure, if you like, so the cameras and, you know, the, the, the broadcast costs and the rest of it. There's also going to be the mechanics of taking the payment as well, which is going to cost a bit. And let's not forget that they, it wasn't that they had to take cameras into these stadiums that wouldn't have been there and make a broadcast that wasn't being broadcast because these games have been broadcast outside the UK anyway. You know, I think one of the big things that, that uh, the Let Us Watch campaign had, had, had talked about was that, that that the only people that couldn't watch Premier League games were fans in North Korea, Saudi Arabia, because it'd be in sport thing, <clears throat> and the UK and, and England. The broadcasters were told to come up with with a package. So they said, "This is what it's going to cost us." And obviously, they would have built in a little bit of tuck for them to make something on top, a bit of margin as well. That's the way business operates. The Premier League would then have said to them, "Okay, <clears throat> well, obviously, we need to make a little bit of money out of this as well because it's our product," uh, and that's how the price would have been arrived at. Uh, now, you know, we've had to deduce that from, from what we found out and we haven't been given the numbers. But uh, until anybody wants to tell us any differently and sit down with us properly, then that's what we're going to say. Uh, you know, that that's the best guess that we've got about how that was put together. Now, the, you know, the, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, one, it's a, it's a new market. They've talked quite a lot about, you know, benchmarking the event. So they said, that, you know, fourteen ninety five for a pay-per-view event isn't all that much. We've had this argument with them before. We talked to them a few years ago about the pricing of tickets for FA Cup semi-finals or finals. And they said, well, if you look at the price of an FA Cup semi-final ticket and you compare it to a Super Bowl ticket or to a centre court ticket for a final at Wimbledon, it's not really that different, that, that, that much of a difference. And we said, but that, those people haven't been to all of the other games through a whole football season that they need to do to qualify for a ticket to get to that semi-final or final. And in the same way here, we're talking about five extra games a week at 14.95. You know, the way that a football audience consumes the product, if you want to put it in those terms, is that it is regularity. So, you know, there isn't an Anthony Joshua boxing match, a world title fight every week. There aren't five every week. There's maybe one or two a season. And at that stage, you might say, well, 14.95 or £25, I think it was, for the last Joshua fight is not that bad. You know, you're talking about £14.95 per game, so, you know, so let's extra on top of all the other costs 
in a situation where people are on 80% of their wages, some people are now facing being on two thirds of the minimum wage, people are losing their jobs. You know, we've got a, a massive, massive economic crisis caused by, by COVID. Uh, and as Kat said that, you know, the first thing we would have said to them if they would have bothered after being surprised that we actually wanted to watch the game, you'd think they'd say, well, how much might you be prepared to pay for it? It's a personal opinion. I think that if they'd have pitched it at 9.99, most people would have said fair enough. I think if they pitch it at 9.99 now, people would turn to stuff it. So, you know, just from a basic marketing point of view, it's a complete cock-up. I think what surprises me is the false equivalency argument doesn't surprise me because I've heard it so many times. I think it's the amount of how often I hear football and by football in inverted commas, I mean the Premier League, the club, governing bodies say, you know, leak it to the press that they've been stunned by the reaction to something or um, taken aback by the response yeah. to and it seems to me, um, Kat, that the obvious answer to that is to consult people first. As Martin has just said, why would you, having dealt with you guys over the summer with the kind of the comeback and the dynamic they use there, why would you not say what would be fair? Why, why would you not? Why would you not come to sports organisations first? Absolutely no idea. That's a very quick answer, isn't it? Um, I think that we we've always tried to be constructive. We've always tried to, as Martin alluded to, uh, focus on the solution, focus on the outcome. Um, we will always try and be constructive and pragmatic. We're not going to go into the room with the PL or with the broadcasters and, you know, uh, sl slap our, our fists on the table or whatever. We will always look at the wider the, the wider ramifications and, and where we want to get to. And in this case, that's obviously a, a far fairer deal for fans. I, I don't think that there is anything more that we could do from our point of view to show good faith and goodwill from our side of the relationship. Um, they have all our details. We are in touch with them. They know where we are. We can't keep saying, guys, hey, you should have spoken to us. All we can hope is that there is so much bad press on this that they learn their lesson and they talk to us in future. I mean, I've been involved in the trust movement for seven years now, and it's, it's a constant battle to be inside the room, having the conversation. You are constantly having to prove that you have something to bring to the table, that you have the knowledge, that you have the insight, that you're not there just to leak stuff confidential or to create issues for them that you can actually work towards a better solution for all parties and all stakeholders that's quite exhausting it's an absolute no-brainer that you would go to your fan groups and say okay you wanted this here's what we're putting on offer what are the obvious pitfalls how do you think we could make the all-round package more attractive could we offer a discount code for season ticket holders could we absorb part of this into our into our ordinary subscriptions what would you want as a consumer what would make this fly would it be a 9.99 price point do you think we could get away with 10.99 if we threw this in there's all look we're here and this is what we do and and why people won't consult with us you'd have to ask them <laughs> we're very readily available and uh, and it's our job to, to do this kind of thing and to put forward the fan view and to use all of our experiences to you know fan feeling and the mood out there and we're constantly taking temperature checks so we have a fairly good grasp as to what's happening within our own fan base and through our connections with the FSA and their national network we we understand the reaction on a national level so I, if, if I were them I'd definitely be talking to me there you go <laughs> as well as saying that they're surprised by the reaction they then say oh well, you don't understand 
Uh, we say, well, explain to us then, <laughs> because how are we going to understand if you're not talking to us? And a lot of the time you'll get like, a kind of political line or a lot of marketing flim flam. Uh, and again, one of the, the, freak, the regular complaints that we put up is that, that uh, you know, I'm not sure if you need to go back and, and find a dictionary and look at the definition of consultation, because consultation doesn't mean telling somebody why you're going to do something and then going on and doing it. It means explaining why you need to do something and getting some agreement. Uh, and actually working out what the problems would be with that. You know, that we, we all do it. We don't expect thanks for this, but anybody who's involved in the support movement does it on top of a job or, you know, it's voluntary. None of this stuff, it's not our job, okay? So people are prepared to put in quite a lot of brain power and quite a lot of time to make something that they care about work better. And, and that, that offer isn't taken up. And it's just nonsense on a basic human level as well as nonsense on a, on a business level. With this issue specifically, I mean, that seems particularly um, hard-headed because this issue is affecting different parts of the country differently. Like, Unfortunately, as we're seeing, different parts of the UK are being locked down. Some have barely come out of lockdown um, even now before they go back into it. You have to have a bit of a wry smile at the decision to, one of the first games, um, for those who don't know, one of the first games to be on pay-per-view um, television this weekend, last weekend, um, was Burnley's game. And Bernie's in a part of England which has been particularly hard hit by what's going on at the moment. The economic repercussions are, well, we won't know what those are for a very long time. But there's no awareness. There's not even that kind of synthetic PR awareness that companies show just to kind of um, to curry favour with people. It, it's astonishing. And that is, imagine the luxury of being able to talk to an individual body that represents an entire fan base uh, an entire club or in some cases you know by proxy an entire region because that's a facility that exists to broadcasters to the premier league to premier league teams you can communicate that way it's not you know trying to trying to gauge public opinion is not as difficult as as you know trying to straw poll you know footfall as it walks past on the high street you have these options available and they still don't get taken up this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Let's talk about your mechanics of the trust. What kind of, um, I think I know the answer to this, Kat, what kind of, what kind of response have you received from the fan base? Because obviously we're only a couple of months removed from the furloughing situation, which I think on behalf of all of us who are connected with Tottenham, I think you guys did an amazing, amazing job with that. And it was, uh, you know, it was very necessary. So you're only a couple of months removed from that. What was it like this time around? What have you heard from supporters? Um, so obviously, uh, as I alluded to earlier, we are connected into a, a national network. So we're in a constant dialogue with all our peer trusts and with other fan groups up and down the country and with national organisations and with our club and with the Premier League, etc. We obviously were on social media. We have all, we've been going to Spurs for decades between us, myself and Martin. So we have tentacles in the fan base into a lot of different demographics there. We also have an online forum for our members. We have a very active inbox at the trust. Uh, and, you know, in the olden days, people would come up and talk to us. So we're, we're fairly good at taking a gauge of the mood and of taking a temperature check and uh, getting a fairly instant reaction. On this one, once it was announced, I used Twitter and put out a very quick poll to ask what people's feelings were around the price point. 50% thought it should be free. 
that's fine. That's up to them. Personally, I think that's kind of idealistic because at the end of all this, the clubs will have lost yeah, about a million too. pounds between next March. Yeah. And I would be a hypocrite because in the meetings with the Premier League, I have said to them, if the price is accessible, then I think that fans will be willing to pay a small amount for this. A small amount isn't £15, by the way. But anyway, the, co the concept, 50% would like it free, whatever. 35% were prepared to pay around a fiver. That gives you a good indication. 12% around a tenner. Uh, and you know the rest, tiny, tiny proportion, were prepared to pay the £14.95. So that was kind of an instant straw poll. And then last week, we did another poll, which was asking people what their plans were we, uh, for the first Tottenham pay-per-view game, which is at home to Brighton and Hove Albion on the 1st of November. So we've got a little bit of time on this. They've So far, they've selected um, their pay-per-view games for three match rounds, and we're at the end of that. So um, basically, there's a little bit of time before our fans need to decide what they're going to do on that. But we thought we'd ask what their, their plans were thereof. I, no surprise, 71% had said that they'd watch it on an illegal stream. 19% weren't going to watch it at all. 6% were planning on going off to the pub. And 4%, only 4% of over 4,000 respondents in just two hours were planning on paying the £14.95. So they're two fairly good, you know, gauges and dipsticks as to what the, the fan feeling is. Um, we've obviously had discussion on our forum. We've had discussion, as I people emailing us in, discussion on our social media channels. Uh, it's not just Spurs fans who feel quite strongly about this. And in fact, this is one of these cases where it's picking up pace. So... Every day that passes, there's more more bad press on it. There's more media on it. There are more and more fan groups who are either calling for a boycott or calling for money to be donated to charities. Local food banks are the, the big winners in this at the moment. There's thousands of pounds going into local food banks, which is not a bad thing, I will, I will say. Uh, very much needed as well. Um, and this isn't going away. So bad news for the broadcasters and the Premier League is that fan feeling on this, people are really digging their heels in. They're really angry. Uh, and across our, our Premier League network, uh, every single fan group is at a level of angry, either from very cross to absolutely fuming. So there's just somewhere on that barometer. Nobody is OK with this. So that's the fan mood at the moment. And I can't see that going away. I think it also represents like um, another layer of the another kind of another way in which sort of another, another failure to recognize the sort of the mood in the room because yeah two problems um and both fairly obvious ones if you um if you if you make it too expensive you make some of this too expensive inevitably people gather um to watch games with their friends they go to pubs mm -hmm. they start doing things like ignoring social distancing rules and government you know guidelines whatever the hell those are at the moment frankly <laughs> the second thing is that the premier league for a long time has waged war against illegal streaming i mean the issue in saudi arabia is you know is based around uh, piracy and there are a few other issues involved there too but primarily it's uh, piracy and so this was an opportunity to to attack that market and to defeat it because if if the price had been something like 499 I'm, I'm trying to think because obviously this isn't unprecedented in the sense we used to have premier league plus a long long time ago and i i was trying to find out today what the um what the pricing for that was and i think it was about sort of 7.99 eight pounds i'm happy to be corrected on that but this was such an easy way to kill so many birds with one stone to be a kind of to show yourself to to understand what happened what's happening in the country um and to, to to give a little bit back, because I, I think as a fan, I think the thing that chips away at my morale is is not like it's not stupid stuff like 
Spurs not being able to defend set pieces or silly things happening like throwing away leads or anything like that. It's this kind of, it's this broader sense that the game always, always, always has its hand out. Always. There is never, it's, do you remember um, when you used to go to the fair and there were those rides which used to shake you upside down so that all the change fell out of your pockets? Um, that's football. That's football. It just makes it just. It's a good it, analogy. It, but it just it, it it sickens me. It makes you feel. It makes you feel like you're being processed. And as soon as you haven't got any money, and in this situation, it's literal because if you can't afford to pay for the pay per view, um, and you don't have access to, well, you don't have any other legal access to footage, then you are quite literally being locked out of the sport. The sport has no use for you because you've got no money left. And I, I think increasingly with the kind of the, the depression felt in this country at the moment, that's, that's kind of the way we're going with the sport. Um, right. Let me calm myself down. Um, Martin, and this is a kind of a general point as well, because you, you've, you know, this isn't the, the only time that, you know, the, the, the trust will be invaluable. But when supportive feeling um, percolates through to you, when it, when, when you, um, you know, when you've, you've taken the temperature of the fan base, what are your next moves as a trust? Cat's kind of covered how we, how, how we kind of try and take the mood. And I think that it, there's a combination of, of having to, you know, there's, there's lots of different views out there. And if we're going to be honest, we'll, we'll, we'll get, you know, we, we get a lot of backing from people, but there's always going to be somebody who disagrees with us. And there's always going to be a few people who really disagree with us uh, over something. And there are, there are people out there who think that 1495 is fair enough and what's the fuss about as well. We would be stupid to take a position on something if we didn't have a good idea that quite a lot of people backed it as well. Because then it would just be us as individuals shutting our mouths off and it wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't represent anybody. But equally, sometimes you've got to take a bit of a leadership position. And I think that, uh, again, you know, it's not boasting it. It's the fact that that both of us have been involved in the supporter movement for quite a long time now. Uh, and you get to know generally, you know, what, what fans like and what they don't. So, you know, the general feeling amongst most British football fans and certainly fans of English football is that the pyramid is in general a good thing. And people like to get to uh, get success based on merit. Okay, that that's that's a general feeling. So in terms of where we go next, I think it's 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 trying to kind of respond to to the various things that 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 are coming up and have that combination of making sure that we we've still got a fairly good handle on what people are thinking, uh, but also kind of taking that position and sometimes arguing a point and taking a lead, leadership position, uh, and I think that's going to become. Uh, more challenging as as more proposals like European Super Leagues, for example, or breakaway deals are talked about, because at some stage people are going to say, well, in the end, you know, I might like this kind of idealistic view that, you know, we're all in it together, but in the end, I want my club to do really well. And I think our argument would be that, you know, I, we, we don't personally, and I don't personally certainly agree with this argument that's being put forward at the moment that people pay to watch some teams, but they don't pay, pay to watch other teams. You know, we know that the so-called big six have got a bigger global audience, but people pay to watch those teams in a competition that means something. There's no point watching something where you know who's going to win. Uh, and th there's concerns over competitive balance already. So in terms of where we go, I think that a lot of what's happened under lockdown has been exactly what you just said, Seb, that, that, that there's that kind of distance between the game uh, and and the people who put the money into it and the people who make the business what it is. It's not just a transactional thing. People invest a lot of uh, of emotion. 
uh, into the game as well. And that's why it's a successful business that it is. And uh, I think that it's trying to trying to engage with some of those more complex arguments, if you like, trying to to do, you know, get some more success in what we've been talking about, which is that let's have some genuine dialogue. Let's have some genuine consultation about where the game wants to go. Because, you know, with, with, with everything that's been happening over the last few weeks, the obvious question is, has anybody asked the fans what they want? Uh, and it isn't good enough for the clubs to say, oh, well, you just don't understand or whatever. You know, I, I think one of the biggest problems, and I think absolutely the reason why, you know, we need an independent regulator in English football. We need something that is is responsible for maintaining competitive integrity. Is because in some ways, you can say that the that, that the the people who run the clubs, uh, you, you can't really blame them because what they are that the system as it exists at the moment says you've got to make sure that your club does well at the expense of every other competitor. It's like a business. You've got to drive everybody else out of business. And so if, if, if you're then the last man standing, there's not a competition. There's not a product to sell, is there? There isn't anything to watch. So in some ways, it's, it's kind of how, how do we save the game from itself? How do we save the, the, the club from itself? You know, the, the shorter term answer to that is that, you know, we need a solution for making sure that people can watch games at an accessible price point. We need a solution for when, and let's hope we get to a stage when you know there's some progress made in 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 fighting the virus and the rates start going down and some people can go back into stadiums but other people who are shielding for example can't go back in we want to make sure that they're not forgotten they've still got access to games as well there'll be lots of you know conversation about how do we get fans back safely into stadium so there's a lot of practical detail that needs to be worked out there probably the, the, you know two of the things that have been said most of, uh, often during this whole crisis are an observation about the game being tone deaf and also you know there's this phrase optics you know the optics don't look good now that's become very popular isn't it as well but I, i'm not sure if football knows or cares how bad it looks to its own customers and to other people you know football is asking the government for help at the moment if you're a politician football is not going to be top of your list of, of kind of vote winning things to help out is it as well so it's just trying to you know, knock some sense into people and saying that you, you need to work with other people you can't just do this on your own. And unfortunately, too many people in football are too full of their own self-importance. I think um, that you just don't understand line is probably the most antagonising of them all because, um, first, it's incredibly arrogant. Um, secondly, and it's very best, what it, what, it, what, it, what it demonstrates is that football is really, really hopeless at explaining itself. I, I'd actually go a little bit further and say that football... There are so many times where football doesn't think it has to explain itself, and then it will kind of turn around and use that sort of use sort of its opaque processes against the supporters at sort of you know when it's convenient. It just drives me absolutely crazy. Cat in the kind of the micro sense, what is the um what is the, the the trust path of recourse in this situation? Where do you go to? Who do you communicate with when you have fans knocking on your door on Martin's door saying, "Yeah, sure, this is." I, I, you know, this is this is not for me. This is not my game. I can't afford this. Where do you go after that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, going back to your previous question to Martin, um, how we progress an issue as a trust. Uh, basically, as co-chairs of the organisation, it would normally be myself and Martin who would propose a position to our board. There are 10 people who are elected onto our board, so to the other eight board members, and we'd ha then have a discussion about that position and about what was the right position to take and 
weigh up the pros and cons and then whatever that board decision was we then adopt that position that would be on the back of discussion with our members who were fully accountable to whether that's on our forum or through surveys or whatever else and blah 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 and at that point we then advance which now comes into your other question so um we have spent many years developing relationships and we can't explain how important it is you know no no club is an island and no fan group is an island neither so um, we are very fortunate now through our own hard work and through uh, the, the national setup also that we do have an ability. We have an ongoing dialogue with Tottenham Hotspur Football Club for all those domestic and local issues. Uh, that's with departmental heads right across the spectrum. So that will be in ticketing or in safety and uh, security or in uh, family relationship management or in uh, whatever. So catering, etc. So all your kind of departmental heads were on regular weekly dialogue, if not daily dialogue with. And we also have an into the executive board level. So we speak to the actual people who set the policy at Tottenham Hotspur as well. And we have set piece meetings with them three or four times a year, but we are in dialogue with them on issues like, I don't know, Project Big Picture or PPV, we'll obviously make contact with them and have dialogue with them around those issues as and when the need arises. So we do have um, avenues and doors open to us to advance issues either on behalf of individual fans. So we take an awful lot of casework for, for, for individual fans who may find themselves in trouble uh, for behavioural matters or ticketing matters at games or, or just have an issue that they, they need to advance. We'll facilitate that dialogue and we'll, we'll make sure that they are in touch with the right person at the club to help them to help them resolve that and we'll oversee that process with them. So that would be on an individual level. On something that's a campaign issue, we would then obviously lobby the club formally so we'd set out our position and we'd set out our asks of them and we'd try and open a constructive dialogue to understand why they've adopted a certain position. If it isn't in line with ours, there may be bits of the jigsaw that we're not privy to. And it, it really is in their interest to educate us <laughs> in, that, in that sense and make sure that we do uh, have, um, you know, we're, we're fully aware of all the facts so we can, we can make a judgment call. Uh, if it's then something that's a national issue, we'll lobby our club. We will then obviously also go into the Premier League. I'm, again, fortunate. I sit on National Council for the Football Supporters Association and I was a fan representative on the Football Association Council, on FA Council. So um, it's the value of uh, relationships and building networks. So uh, I would advance either with the Premier League uh, or with the FA, depending on what the issue was. Uh, so we've got a channel through there as well. And then obviously through the Football Supporters Association, you have connections to every fan group in the country and in Europe through Football Supporters Europe. We are also very fortunate to have built some good relationships, relationships with some very intelligent, empathetic, bright, smart journalists. I don't know who we could be talking about, but we have uh, who are more than willing to listen to the fan point of view, who, who were very lucky they give us a platform to advance, uh, you know, our thoughts and, and, and issues that we think that are important. Look, the sexy stuff happens on pitch. Most fans just want to go to a game and watch their team. And that's all they're interested in. The, the, the pint of a, you know, the price of a pint of Amstel might be a small issue, but generally 99.9% .9 of your football fans just want to watch their team. This other stuff is stuff that weirdos do. So me and Martin are on the weirdo scale. <laughs> um, but the fact that people like yourselves give us a platform to talk about this other stuff, which is so important. 
you know, being able to afford to go to a game, being able to get to a game, being able to see your team, it's be given a voice in how your club is run is massively important. So uh, this is a, a long-winded way of saying thank you for giving us an opportunity to talk about this today. Uh, it's the only reason I invited you on is just for the ego stroke, really. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I just end the podcast now. We're, we're kind of done. <laughs> what I say, like, I am... Um, I've kind of moved away from from match reporting the last few months and probably what will go down as as being my last game was Spurs Champions League match in uh, in Leipzig. Um what a what a glorious night that was. But something struck me about that which it, it feels like it's it's pertinent to this situation. I was walking around Leipzig in the hours before the game and um afterwards and the atmosphere outside that ground versus the average atmosphere and the way supporters are treated outside grounds in England was um, a real contrast. Um, and it kind of harks back to this issue. And, and Martin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this to you to see what you think about it. But it, it, it harks back to this issue. It's been around for a really long time in that football fans aren't really treated like people. On the one hand, um, they're expected to dig very, very deep into their pockets. On the other, um, if they don't want to, it doesn't really matter because they're just a kind of homogenous, massive nobodies anyway. And there's that kind of malignancy in this movement as well. It's like a, you know, 1495 is a lot of money, but ultimately 1495 is a negotiation between different people in that room when that decision was made. And there was someone in that room that probably wanted 25, 20, 18, something like that. I just feel like, well, this is, this is what we can get away with. And I feel like it's just such a, I don't even know what I'm saying. I think I'm just having a bit of a rant, Martin. So just stop, just start talking over me. And 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 you're an idealist. Go on, off you go. <laughs> well, uh, well, I mean, that's, that's a big one, you know. How long have you got? Um, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the reason that I got involved in doing this was that, you know, I've, I've, I've been a, a trade unionist for most of my, my life. I believe that, that people should have a voice uh at every level um i think that you know the people so supposedly at the bottom contribute to what happens at the top as well if you, if you want to put it like that so i suppose i'm an activist if you like i stayed out of a lot of things around that with football because football was what i did uh, on my time off but it's something that i love uh, and yeah i mean i do i do still think it's the people's game and i think i'm actually reading julie walsh's book at the moment about being the first woman football great group on great, writer. great and writer. she comes up with a, a she has, there's a great phrase in there where she described a, a stadium as being a repository of people's memories that stay there like a watermark and i thought that was a wonderful way of describing it and i've always said this that that, that you know unfortunately or not we, we have to recognize that football is a business and it's quite a big business now but it is a business like no other because of those emotional attachments that people have got so, you know, as somebody, I started going to matches in the late 70s uh, and I was going to games through the 80s. Uh, and so I was there when things were very different inside grounds. And I was also there when fans started organising themselves a bit and they started publishing fanzines and they started saying, well, actually, we've got different opinions uh, and different things were, were going on. And I think, you know, it might be a bit of a cliche, but the thing that then massively, massively influenced me, and I always think back to it, was, was Hillsborough. Uh, I was at a game, I was at Plough Lane that day watching Spurs play Wimbledon and we'd heard that there'd been a riot at the game and some fans had been killed. That's what was announced uh, over over the tunnel at half time. And it wasn't until I got home and I, and I saw what happened there. Uh, and I mean, Spurs fans, a lot of Spurs fans will tell the story that it, it could have been them. 
uh, in the, the semi-final in 1981 against uh, Wolves that was played at Hillsborough. There was a cross there. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the thing that struck me about Hillsborough was that the, the fans who were being crushed uh, at the front of, of that stand up against barriers were pleading with the police and the stewards to let them on the pitch and they wouldn't do it because they'd be conditioned to see them as a threat. Uh, and that that was like the, you know, the, the, the point, you know, I started writing then more for fanzines and getting a bit involved in what was then the, the Tottenham Independent Supporters Association because it, it, it was more serious than just, you know, they should be treating us a bit better. You know, people are dying because they've been dehumanised. Uh, and it doesn't just happen in football, it happens in other places. Uh, and that's it, probably kind of made this, you know, quite dark and quite major. But, but you asked a question, so it's that important. It is life or death uh, sometimes as well for people to be treated properly. Uh, so a lot of it's about economic exploitation, but it's also about treating people as human beings. And we often say that the game recognises the transactional nature, but it hasn't got any human empathy as well. And I think it's important to, to keep that. I think there's an interesting discussion about Germany. I, I don't think personally that the German model uh, is as perfect as a lot of people hold it up to. But I think there is a lot to learn from Germany. I think there is a very, very different fan culture there. And I really admire what a lot of their fans have done. Uh, it, it's different here. And I think, again, recognising the kind of organic differences uh, are, are really important. I then got involved in, in the trust and in its current incarnation because I, I had been involved in various organised sort of spurts of fan behaviour, I suppose, for years. And I'd written a lot. And I had a lot to say for myself as a journalist. And I started writing about football as well. And I've always thought, you know, talking is easy, but actually getting on and doing things is probably a bit more useful uh, uh, as well. Uh, and that's that's why I you know uh, I do what I do, and I think there are a lot of people, you know, so, some of them are the journalists that that, that that Kat talked about, and it isn't just about stroke and ego, but it is incredibly useful having in the media people to understand because again, a lot of the reason why a lot of us started writing fanzines in the seventies and eighties was because that the, the the fans view wasn't re reflected. The journalists hated us as much as the as the as the as the police and the people that ran the clubs. You know, we were treated with with absolute contempt. Uh, and so, in the media now, there is an understanding uh, of of the fan point of view, and that's really good. There are a lot of really really smart people that are involved at different levels who have got different priorities throughout the supporters movement at different clubs as well. Um, uh, you know, there are people involved in the national side of it and also at clubs and in the game there are a lot of really good people who, who really want this to work in the way that we all do You know, that, and that, that cliche about it being the people's game, yes it's a cliche but this this was the the reason that football is the draw that it is in this country is because it was something that was created by us and yes it's gone a long way from that now but that the value of it is still it's still there that's why we spend so much time talking about it and arguing about it as well you know and I mean I've often at the joke you know I spent far too much of my time you know wasting my life sitting in pubs talking about football but it, it is a fantastic thing you know at its best it is brilliant it brings people together and it is about more than just what happens on the pitch but that's always the center of it as well and it is that the thing that always gets me is the sport not realizing you know its true value it's it's more than recognizing the price of everything and the value of nothing it, it actually doesn't really understand why it's so valuable and that that's the great pity and you, you've got so many people out there that care about it and that, and, that, and that want it to be what it could be and it, it's you know 
if, if if that goes, then maybe it's time to look for something else. But there's enough of that there to 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 still make it worth trying to fight for it, I guess. Well, let's end on a human level though, because I think that's important. I mean, you've talked about people a lot there, Martin, and and that's the thing that strikes a chord with me. The game's failure to recognise that these are people. Um, Cap, um, right at the beginning, you talked about um, sort of pointing people towards food banks and some of the local charitable organisations. There are a lot of people suffering in England, up and down the country. Um, who would you be able to tell me a little bit about who you guys are, are sort of pointing people towards at the moment? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so basically, we've just asked uh, our fans to consider whether or not they want to pay the £14.95 uh, on the 1st of November. And if they don't, then the Tottenham Food Bank would be incredibly grateful for their support. Um, it's, it's a shocking, I think it's doubled the, the number of clients needing the food banks doubled since March. Actually, that's not that surprising, but it still shocked me. Uh, so they and the, the number of people donating has also declined because people can't get to the shops as much because you know we're stuck indoors and shielding and lockdown and whatever else. So basically, in a nutshell, they could really do with your help. So if you'd like to support them, uh, then you absolutely can. If you bear with me, I will get you all the details. Absolutely, absolutely. As to how you can do that. Um, but yes, I mean, in the meantime, if you want to go onto our Twitter feed, we we put out. Um, a post yesterday uh, which linked to a little statement and gave you all the details as to how to connect with the Tottenham Food Bank uh, but they'd be most grateful. Well Kat's looking for that I mean I yeah, think that, me, that, you know we've we've got some <laughs> our, our game isn't sort of 1st of November so uh, you know we, we didn't go out as soon as somebody had our supporters groups did in terms of you know well you know here's an option that you know you can give your fee to the food bank uh, or anyone else and, okay. and again that's partly a response to uh, a lot of the fans that got in touch with us, but uh, you know, I think what is pretty evident is that you know, pay per view or not pay per view, uh, there is an absolute need to support the food bank uh, you know, and quite a lot of other charities Tasty. as well. But you know, food, you know, the debates going on in Parliament today, that you know, the Marcus Rashford initiative as well, uh, we're trying to, you know, we're in a developed nation apparently, and we can't put food on the table. So this has kind of gone beyond football in a way, but it's such a basic thing, and it's like Tasty. I think we'd say to people. You know, aside from whatever happens with, with, with PPV and how it goes for the rest of the season, what is really evident now is that people have got to be giving whatever they can to make sure that people around in the areas around their football clubs, in the areas around where they live. And actually, if you don't give it to the Tottenham Food Bank and you live somewhere else, but you're a Tottenham fan, you know, give, give that give that money, make that contribution to, to where it can count. You know, it doesn't matter. But this is such a basic thing. People have not got food to put on the table. And it is, I'm afraid, going to get worse over the next six months. So the, the Tottenham Food Bank, justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash Tottenham hyphen food bank. So justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash Tottenham hyphen food bank. So uh, that's where you can make a donation and you can also donate three, five, 10 or 20 pounds straight to the food bank by texting Tottenham 3, Tottenham 5, Tottenham 10 or Tottenham 20 to 70085. 70085. So that's the Tottenham food bank. But as Martin quite rightly pointed out, uh, if, if you're a Tottenham fan but live somewhere else and would rather support a local one, then please, please do. You know, there's there's no hierarchy here. All your money would be very gratefully received by any food bank. Just another quick one. If people want to go onto our website at um, thstofficial.com, one of the other charities we support, a local charity, yes. is a charity called the Studio 306 Collective. Uh, they... Um, deal with people who have, have kind of had mental health issues at different stages of their life. There's a little bit of rehabilitation uh, where it goes on there. It's a community initiative. Again, 
people are under tremendous, tremendous mental pressures at the moment. Uh, and the work that charities like Studio 306 do, uh, uh, you know, largely goes under the radar. You know, they haven't got big marketing budgets. A lot of people don't know about them. We've tried to, to kind of push the work that they do. If people want to find out about them, they can find it on our website. And again, I've got you know, we know we're asking people for a lot, but if there's anything that you can do, please, please think about that as well. And they are at www.studio306.co.uk. Perfect. It's a perfect place to end, really. I, I think um, this is just my opinion. I, I'm not in the business of trying to shame anybody that's watching games by pay-per-view or anybody who can afford to to um, buy those individual features. But I, it's a time for compassion. Um, and it's a time to, to kind of to think about priorities and, 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 and do do have a look at those organizations. I mean, there's many, many, many of them around the country. And uh, yeah, they're all uh, far more important than football. And ultimately, this is kind of really what football is supposed to be about, community. So um, please do uh, take a moment to think about some of the things. Guys, thank you so much for coming in. It's a, um, it's a work night. Um, we're working from home anyway, so it doesn't make as much difference. But it's a Wednesday <laughs> and, um, you know, we're all, all pretty tired. But thank you so much for giving it your time. Thank Thanks for you. asking us on. Always a pleasure.